for nearly two decades. The award-winning Your Financial Editor program on 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with Your Financial Editor, Chris Murray. Welcome to the Your Financial Editor program. This is Chris Murray, your host. Thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Um, and we have a good program for you today. We're going to go over some uh, top stories, some economic data, a uh, little bit from the Federal Reserve, and then joining me in just a little bit, uh, Mr. David Ditch, and he is a, a, a researcher at the uh, Grover M. Herman Center for uh, Federal Studies. And um, we're going to be talking about the unsustainable national debt problem that we've uh, we've gotten ourselves in. So we're going to pull all that apart, see just how deep that hole is right now, and then also uh, what are some of the opportunities uh, to to get us out. Um, and I think you're going to find it very informative, uh, to say the least. One of the things, um, before I get to the top stories, there was a nice large deal that was announced at the beginning of the week. Bristol-Myers Squibb said that it was buying a biotechnology company called Myocardia in a $13.1 billion deal, and that's aimed at expanding Bristol Myers Squibb, uh, you know, their cancer drug powerhouse. But with the purchase of myocardia, that helps them tremendously with their heart drugs. So this is an all cash deal. It would uh, snag myocardia's promising experimental heart drug, which, uh, if approved, would allow Bristol uh, to lessen its reliance on just cancer therapies. So myocardia's uh, lead pipeline drug, uh, it's it's called uh, Mava Catman, and um, it treats a chronic heart condition that can cause irregular uh, irregular heart rhythms in some patients, and really even death. So it's fantastic that they were able to develop that, and then again with Bristol Myers Squibb being so much uh, larger and more powerful, hopefully they'll be able to do uh, really good things for the patients out there, and it'll also help. Um, the financial side of it as far as um, the the stock price. Um, you know, this stupid virus, um, it's, it's so frustrating when you look and see all the damage that um, it has caused. I saw from the World Bank this week that they have a, um, these estimates that come out occasionally on global poverty. I think they're twice a year. And the virus pandemic has thrown between 88 million and 114 million people into extreme poverty. So the reversal is by far the largest increase in extreme poverty going back to 1990 when the data uh, began to be collected. And it marks an end to a great streak that we had of more than two decades of declines in the number of extremely impoverished uh, folks. So, and just so you know, when I'm talking extreme poverty, it's um, living on less than $1.90 a day or about 700 bucks a year. So now the World Bank uh, estimate, they're, they're estimating a total of between 703 million to 729 million people are in extreme poverty. And that number could rise uh, further in 2021, depending on what happens. So um, it, it's just 
it's devastating. And obviously the global director at the World Bank's uh, Poverty and Equity Global Practice that puts this out um, was saying that, you know, this is the worst setback that we've witnessed uh, in a generation. And um, you just have to feel for these people. I mean, obviously, uh, you have the health side where um, people have lost their souls and um, have been sick. And it's, uh, you know, really ravaged the the families that are tied to that with all of the emotional pain. Uh, But then you look at all the other that's connected to it. And it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. And on the money side, I saw this week that COVID will double company default rates across the United States and Europe over the next nine months. So that came from S&P Global, the rating agency, and they noted that the record downgrade pace of recent months was slowing. So that's the good news, but still so much damage has already been done. And S&P predicted that U.S. corporate default rates would rise to 12.5% from 6.2. So just a huge increase there. And this year's uh, crisis has already seen more than 2,000 companies or uh, various countries. Their ratings, um, how their ratings uh, were looked at, they were cut. They were lowered. And nearly $400 billion worth of debt dropped into junk territory. Um, and like I said, it depending on how this all goes, it could be um, even worse as we go into uh, the end of this year and the beginning of 2021. So that's – I mean, I, obviously I've been frustrated with uh, with the virus since we first learned about it, just like you have, I'm sure, when we learned about it coming out of uh, out of China – one thing that was positive this week in that area, the Senator Kelly Loeffler, who's from Georgia, she's made it her mission to make China pay for the COVID-19 crisis or the China flu or Wuhan, Wuhan virus, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, it was first observed in the city of Wuhan in late 2019, and since then, it's spread to pandemic proportions, infecting nearly 36 million people around the world and, what, seven and a half million here in the United States. So, um, you know, she was saying China knew about this virus. They failed to warn us. They lied to us and they covered up. And then they denied doing that. And she went on to say that, uh, you know, it costs lives around the world. It costs livelihoods. And it's really impacting everyone across our country here in America. And we have to hold China accountable and make sure that this never happens again. So Loeffler wants to make sure that China answers for actions. Um, She says Beijing made the World Health Organization complicit in covering up the virus and its origins and attempted to steal information about a vaccine and intellectual property. So China really can't be any more of an enemy right now than, you know, what we're seeing. And I hope she's not cheerleading. Now, she's in a a tightly contested um, election. She was appointed, I believe, by Governor Kemp down there from a vacated seat because um, the other senator um, retired because of health concerns. 
But I, I don't know. I just hope it's not all talk. And I, and I loved hearing it. And, you know, some of the other folks, elected officials are, you know, they're talking tough, too. And I hope that they really do put their boot on China's neck and, and does hold them accountable and somehow try to figure out how we can make them pay for this. Now, it, it's not going to be easy, but somehow, and it won't be a direct way where they, you know, write us a check or something, but um, we need to get, we need to be compensated for these, um, financially, for these massive loss, losses that we've seen. And then, of course, the jobs destroyed, some of them for good. You know, we know some of these businesses, they aren't going to be able to rebound from this. They'll go away. So uh, China's got to pay for sure. And, you know, who's really having a hard time is um, the airline sector because travel's down so much. And we actually saw this week that the CEO of Southwest, Gary Kelly, announced that uh, the airline is going to need to sacrifice more is the way he worded it in his uh, video to employees by undergoing pay cuts in an effort to avoid layoffs and uh, furloughs through 2021 because of the virus and its ongoing impact of travel demand. So the announcement comes as the airline industry has been pleading for an extension of the payroll support program that was allotted under the CARES Act, which was passed back in um, uh, back in March. So um, the CEO of Southwest noted that the payroll support program has expired and Southwest simply cannot afford to continue with conditions required to maintain full pay and employment. So he was cheering on his employees by saying that They've all performed um, in a magnificent way, and he was calling them our heroes, meaning those at, at Southwest. But he said, now it's time for us to do what must be done to save the airline, to save Southwest Airline. So um, just extremely uh, tough for that sector right now, the airline uh, industry. And, you know, they, they've been goofing around, and they do need aid. By the way, this isn't, you know, this isn't wouldn't be a waste or um, a, a bad bailout because the TSA screenings are down dramatically, even from where they were. We saw a little bit of a rebound, but it's going the, the opposite direction. So they really do need help. And instead of just doing these direct bills like to the airlines, you've got these politicians who are greedy and I think they're ignorant. Um, because, you know, people are losing their jobs. They're losing their life because of some of these political decisions. So um, hopefully they'll get it worked out somehow. And I say they, I mean Secretary Mnuchin and, um, and anybody else that, you know, is going to do it the right way. That is that more debt? Yes. Unless, you know, again, it's structured as a loan, which uh, we've done some of that too. And that's going to be our subject coming up a, a little later where, you know, I'll be speaking with an expert on our national debt, but sometimes you do have to, we do as taxpayers have to step in and uh, support these businesses and industries that need it. So um, we'll have to wait and see how that all plays out. Um, Quick break uh, before that, again, you can go to murrayfinancialgroup.com and uh, download your complimentary 
um, piece called Are You Paying Too Much in Taxes in Retirement? It's a uh, it's a nice read, not real long. You just go. It's right on the homepage, murrayfinancialgroup.com, and you click on it uh, to get your instant download, and then you can uh, use it however you see uh, fit, and hopefully it's helpful because uh, that's why we have it on there for you. So murrayfinancialgroup.com, and it's right there on the homepage. And back in just a minute. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And, of course, uh, you can go to iTunes and download uh, the Your Financial Editor program as a podcast and re-listen to it or share it with uh, someone you think that uh, it would be helpful for. So, um, again, that's iTunes or www.wfmd.com. And it's uh, in the audio vault if you'd like to uh, to re-listen or share. So when we look at the economic data of uh, of this week, um, it was definitely more good than than bad. I would say one of the pieces that came out early that I was really uh, in, encouraged to, uh, to to go over was uh, the recovery for the U.S. services businesses out there. That actually that recovery actually gained momentum in September. So when you look at the Institute for Supply Management's non-manufacturing index, um, so that's uh, the surveys based on measure of activity in the U.S. industries, such as you know travel and healthcare and restaurants and real estate. But it rose to a reading of 57.8, up from where it was in August. There was also another report uh, the same day that came out from IHS Market. And when I was uh, perusing that, I saw that that read of the U.S. Services Index came in at 54.6. Uh, so we saw growth. Um, from both of those major uh, surveys. So, um, you know, these surveys, they track the direction of change in business activity. And anytime you're over 50, it signals expansion. So that was really good to see those numbers, obviously, uh, over 50. Now, you look at travel and hospitality, entertainment, and some other areas, they're coming back, but at a much more um, reduced pace compared to a lot of uh, a lot of others. So, but that was both of those reports were very positive when it came to the service sector. And then also, you know, usually you wonder is this a good thing or a bad thing as far as our trade deficit. 
But um, we posted our largest monthly trade deficit since 2006 in August. And that's because consumers were buying up all kinds of good stuff. And that uh, really is evidence, I think, of a snapback in global trade, not just here. So our U.S. deficit uh, trade deficit widened 5.9 percent from where it was in July. That's the largest gap uh, since, as I mentioned, back uh, towards the end of 2006, according to the Commerce Department. So our inputs, excuse me, our imports were up 3.2 percent, while our exports uh, were up 2.2 percent. So like I said, that rise in imports, there's a lot of demand from consumers out there. Um, So imports of consumer goods and food rose in August and are the the that those are the broad categories of foreign trade that have actually surpassed year ago levels. So this was good. That was really good to see and hopefully that'll continue into the end of the year. Something else that I saw that I was um I was encouraged by was when I looked at the uh weekly uh, energy report and we saw that US crude oil refinery inputs um, averaged 13.9 million barrels per day uh, a week ago. That was 184,000 barrels per day more than just the previous week. Refineries, they're operating at 77.1% of their uh, capacity. Gasoline production increased uh, last week, averaging 9.5 million barrels per day. Distillates, uh, that fuel production increased 4.5 million barrels per day. Just think of diesel fuel. And, you know, you, you see all the people on the roads now and, of course, all of the, the truckers and all of the cargo they're moving. It's, it's very encouraging, and it's backed up when you see that there's good, solid demand for energy. So um, that was really good to see, for sure. Not so good to see as we've had to experience uh, the last uh, six months or so is uh, our initial jobless claims. Um, They fell last week, um, according to the Labor Department, and they're down sharply from the peak in March. But the claims still remain above um, where we were before COVID-19. So when you dig a little deeper into it, though, there there was some good news because the number of people collecting unemployment benefits through regular state programs, which cover most workers, actually fell by a million. So it went from 12 million the prior week down to 11 million last week. And the so-called continuing claims declined throughout the summer, indicating many unemployed people are returning to work as, uh, you know, we move forward in this recovery. So, you know, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel we're seeing there, I think. Um, This is something that I made note of to bring up. And again, it's going to be our main discussion in just a little while. But the U.S. budget deficit tripled in the fiscal year that just ended September 30th, according to the Congressional Budget Office. So our budget gap for one year from, you know, 2019 to 2020 fiscal year, $3.1 trillion. So obviously nobody saw what we're dealing with coming. Um, and also when you look at that number and how it is, um, 
it's viewed as far as economic output, it's the largest we've seen since 1945, which those that are, you know, taught history realize that's, um, that's when we, our country was facing massive military operations so that we could win World War II. But now with this virus, it's a different type of war. And you've got this surge in federal spending to combat the virus and to try to cushion our economy. And then, of course, you've got the drop off in federal revenues because of, uh, you know, people not working or businesses closing or whatever the case was uh, because of those shutdowns and layoffs. And that's obviously contributing or helped to contribute to the deficit. But, yeah, $3.1 trillion. And, again, if we had been sitting here last year at this time even trying to speculate what could cause that, I think it would be hard for us to to fathom what we've uh, had to deal with for sure. Um, and then as far as the Federal Reserve – uh, what we saw from them this week were the minutes from their last meeting. And they were really, and by the way, it was a two-day meeting, September 15th and 16th. And according to the minutes, you know, officials were really trying to figure out how to use their existing and also new policies, that, that framework, to help the economy in the best way. And there was a little bit of a surprise because they actually raised the bar for interest rate increases at that meeting and signaled they expected it would be at least three years now before they would be near the new threshold and therefore raise interest rates. So they laid out this kind of three-part test that must be met before they consider lifting rates and um, and it basically was first, you know, they need to be satisfied that the labor market conditions meet their maximum employment goals, which we were pretty much there before the um, the virus. You know, we hadn't seen three point five percent unemployment in what was it, like 50 years. So they want to get back there. Second, inflation has to be at two percent. And the third part of that is they want to see some evidence um from forecasts or market-based uh, measures, that inflation will continue to run right around 2% or so. So uh, it sounded like it was a pretty interesting meeting. Two of the um, Fed Bank presidents did not vote for, um, you know, those those policies and procedures. It was the Dallas Fed president and um, I think um, the guy from Minneapolis, uh, that Fed Bank president, they, you know, were looking to do things a little differently. So they weren't in the, they didn't have the herd mentality, I guess. So that's something that, um, again, is going to be watched very closely. And, you know, we've got this election coming up and that could impact the Federal Reserve, of course, because if uh, Jay Powell is not um, basically offered his job once his term is up uh, by a new administration, then you could see a drastic change in policy. Uh, I think the lady's name is Brainard. Um, She's on the Fed board, and um, she apparently was going to be the new Fed chairman 
if uh, Clinton had won uh, four years ago. So you would think that there's a pretty good likelihood with her being there that if there is a change in the administration, she could take over as chairman. And then we'd have to see what type of uh, policy changes, you know, we would have to deal with. So that's something else that's kind of hanging out there right now. Uh, Okay, another quick break. And uh, when we come back, we'll be talking with my guest, Mr. David Ditch, about this unsustainable national debt that we have. I mean, obviously, you just feel like we're Thelma and Louise driving, you know, towards the cliff. And um, we're going to get deep into it and see exactly where we are, how we got here, and importantly, some ideas and some uh, thought as to how we can improve and and start working our way out. Again, if you go to murrayfinancialgroup.com, the uh, instant download for you, it's right on the homepage, is titled, Are You Paying Too Much in Taxes in Retirement? So uh, that's there for you. I hope you find it helpful. And uh, we'll see you on the other side of the break. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tracy Lawrence. Some people pile in the church on Sunday to talk to the man upstairs. Some people drown in a fifth crown, but life seems a little more fair. Some people like to roll one up when their world starts rolling downhill. That ain't how I roll. It's your financial editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD. I'm just a I'm junkie, always leaving the things that love me. Wish I could make it last just a little bit longer, but I keep looking for something a little stronger. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD. And, of course, at WFMD.com. And you can get the Your Financial Editor program um, from iTunes as a podcast, if you'd like. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate it as always. And, you know, we were looking forward to the second part of the uh, program today in a bittersweet way because we're going to be talking about this uh, insane um national debt level that uh, we're experiencing right now. And joining me, Mr. David Ditch. He's a research associate for um, Gro- or at Grover M. Herman Center for the federal budget. Uh, he is uh, he kind of focuses on uh, the budget and transportation type issues. Um, you've probably heard him on other uh, radio programs and seen his work in uh, publications like the Los Angeles Times. And before um, he landed at uh, the Heritage Foundation, he was a budget analyst for the Senate Budget Committee, where he oversaw appropriations in agriculture, uh, among other things. So good morning, David. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for taking the time to uh, to join us. So um, this uh, we were talking about this a little bit earlier in the program. I was kind of letting everybody know what we learned this week, that the U.S. budget deficit tripled in the fiscal year that ended September 30, uh, according to the Congressional Budget Office. So, you know, we saw uh, numbers just staggering, $3.1 trillion. We know uh, the reason, but even though you know the reason, it's very hard to see that. Um, do, do you think anybody had any type of, any number near that uh, before we heard about the virus? Um, well, absolutely not. I mean, the, the, you would get certain 
guesstimates about what the deficit would be, and the ranges would be fairly close together. I mean, what the Congressional Budget Office forecasted is what we all expected because we thought the economy would keep growing reasonably well. We didn't think any major legislation would pass that would change things for better or worse just because of the big disagreements between the branches of government. And, yeah, it wasn't as though things were in great shape. We were still going to run a trillion-dollar deficit this year, That, and especially – the fact that we were going to run that kind of a federal deficit with the economy as good as it was, that was already sort of a, you know, there were some warning bells going off then, but no one saw this coming. Yeah, so um, kind of explain or lay out uh, how it all transpired and how we ended up uh, at, you know, that, that massive deficit when uh, they closed the book for the fiscal year. So again, you have to start with the, the what they call the baseline deficit. You have a certain set of policies, including tax policies like the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act from uh, 2017. You have ongoing programs like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, you're paying for national defense, and the amount that the federal government was going to spend would be a lot larger than the amount it would take in from taxes. Then you have to layer on multiple bills, especially the CARES Act, which passed in the spring, that were designed to cushion the economy from the fallout of the COVID pandemic and all the related shutdowns. And one of the things that is frankly astonishing is for you, when you consider that all that spending has added trillions to the deficit, there is still a huge amount of money that was authorized in the bill that hasn't even been spent yet. So there's the potential that there's going to be a lot more spending that, in amount, frankly, we can't even properly guesstimate just from what's already passed. So we had all of those issues that you just mentioned, plus um, the uh – tax revenue was down because of what was going on in the economy and how businesses and individuals were being impacted, right? Yes, that, that's also true. We lost a couple hundred uh, billion dollars in revenue. So uh, when I was looking at some of the data from the Congressional Budget Office and, you know, we saw this uh, this huge three-plus trillion dollar uh, deficit, um, it, it looked like it's the largest that we've seen as a share of economic output since 1945. And again, I think everybody remembers what was going on then. We were financing massive military operations so that we could um, come out on top in World War II. Yes, that that is the case. And in this in this type of situation, I, I always think it's important to put things in context. So, for example... $3.1 trillion is an amount of money that none of us can really wrap our heads around. Right. But if you if you break it down by person, it's about $10,000 for everyone, men, women, and children. And on a per-household basis, it's around $25,000. And that's just one year. One year. <laughs> So, yeah, it's, it's it, like you said, you can't even, you know, you start throwing around hundreds of billions and then the trillions. People, I think, it just zooms right over their head. And it's so hard to get your arms around trying to comprehend uh, those uh, those 
those massive amounts. So, um, so what do you think? Um, I mean, that like I said, that three plus trillion is on top of all of the other debt that was there. Um, how do we even try to turn things around? It is going to be an arduous task, and I think the first step is for. <laughs> There, there are times where the concept of awareness is something that I sort of roll my eyes at. There, there are lots of problems that everyone knows about that we've heard about a, a, a thousand times. We don't need more awareness. In this case, however, I think there, there's an exception because you can watch cable news 24 hours a day every waking moment and almost never hear about the national debt. It doesn't matter whether which channel you're watching. You can read news every day, rarely see it referenced. Most people have no idea. And if you were to watch C-SPAN and watch the House and the Senate, see what people are talking about. Again, members of Congress almost never talking about it. Campaigns almost never talk about it. The fact is that well-informed people are oftentimes not aware of this issue because it's rarely being discussed. I think it's vitally important that the media, that political leaders, those in office or seeking office, inform the public more about this pressing problem. Because unless there is public awareness of the problem, there's not going to help be public support for the kind of tough choices that are going to be necessary to solve it. And I, unfortunately, I agree with you 100%, by the way, but I, I don't really know how that would change. I mean, I mean, we talk about it here on the program and obviously, you know, kind of face it head on and make people aware. And what you shared as far as $10,000 per person and $25,000 per household is great because, you know, you're able to, to skinny it down and streamline it. So our listeners today are like, oh, okay, I get it. You know, this is a, this is a big deal. Um, and, you know, there's a lot more debt uh, along with it. So, and, and for whatever reason, um, there just doesn't seem to be uh, a whole lot of pushback on more spending. Like you said, there's money that hasn't even been applied for yet, and you've got these other dream-type proposals that are out there uh, that we're hearing about from inside the Beltway that would just, you, you know, make the, the, the cut deeper. And one of the reasons why I think it hasn't been in the headlines quite as much is that if you go back 30, 40 years, the interest that the federal government was paying on the debt was a lot higher per dollar of debt. Right now, the interest we're paying on the debt per dollar of debt is very low. It's historically low, in fact. Right. However, we're sort of – we're eating our seed corn. We're – We've been taking advantage of those low interest rates, and it really could come back to bite us because we can't control the interest rates. The vast majority of that debt is on global markets. And if, for example, Asian countries like China and South Korea and Vietnam stop saving as much, the demand for our debt will go down. If 
buyers, if bond markets decide, okay, the debt is getting really high, we don't know that America is a 100% safe investment anymore, interest rates can go up. And when you have a, a, a what they call public debt, which is to say that the debt that we don't control the interest on is over $20 trillion now, one basis point of interest is $200 billion every single year. If it goes up two basis points, that's $400 billion a year. It adds up incredibly quickly, and that can become an absolute deadweight anchor dragging on our economic growth. Yeah, absolutely. That's just and that's scary. And I think that's part of the reason, to tell you the truth, that people don't talk about it as much as they should, because it's so uncomfortable that nobody wants to address the elephant in the room. It seems like I don't care if it's an individual or if it's an elected or an appointed person. You know, it's just it's it's something that's ignored. Want to let everybody know we're going to squeeze in a quick break, uh, break, excuse me, and then finish up on the other side of that. Uh, we'll continue our conversation with Mr. David Ditch. He's a research associate um, at the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget, and uh, that's part of the Heritage Foundation. And you can go to heritage.org, and you can uh, read uh, David's work and along with everybody else as they do a phenomenal job at um, the Heritage Foundation for getting out accurate, very informative uh pieces and it's it's always fun to um to to read and actually you can sign up for um a free daily email um to to get various pieces that's where i saw david's um i guess it was last week um i believe i saw the piece um that was titled um addressing the biggest threat to our children's future unsustainable national debt and we'll continue to talk about that um on the other side of this break so stay tuned take me down where the beer is cold the fish get fried and the fireflies glow roll me down an old out of town road show me where the river runs i need a break from Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And you can get the Your Financial Editor program um, on iTunes as a podcast. So you could re-listen to it or share it with someone that you think it would be helpful to. And um, it's it's there for you. And we're uh, continuing our conversation with my guest this morning, Mr. David Ditch. He's a uh, research associate um, at the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. Um, he got his uh, MA in political management from George Washington University. He also holds a BA in economics and political science from the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York. And, um, you know, David, we were talking right before the break. I mentioned the piece that you wrote uh, recently uh, titled Addressing the Biggest Threat to Our Children's Future, Unsustainable National Debt. And um, I mean, what has the the response been to that piece? Did it kind of wake some folks up, you think? I honestly, I wish it did. Um, It can be tough for us to get direct feedback on our pieces. Uh, For example, my email address isn't 
on this piece. Um, I, I think one of the reasons why they do that is so that we don't get inundated with, for example, uh, spam messages. Right. I will say that, the, honestly, the biggest way that I get feedback is when, for example, hosts like yourself from around the country reach out to us uh, so that we can talk to the public. But uh, for, fortunately, I do know that whenever I write something that goes on the website, Heritage has a lot of ways of getting the word out. So I'm, I'm never worried about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my feedback is your piece was very well written, and I, I appreciated it. So um, tell us, we, we've identified, you know, how bad the problem is, um, and it's it's almost overwhelming to, to really uh, dig into it deeply. But who do you know that is working on ways to improve that situation? First and foremost, I look at uh, committee staff at the House and Senate Budget Committees. Uh, for example, the, the Senate Budget Committee right now, especially where I worked, uh, Chairman Mike Enzi of Wyoming, who is unfortunately retiring, has spent uh, a couple decades in Congress trying to raise awareness, trying to craft responsible budget resolutions. There are also uh, several, unfortunately, several dozen, not several hundred members of Congress who I see as reliably you know, trying to get the word out, trying to vote responsibly, you know, voting, you know, offering amendments to cut spending, voting against a lot of these big spending deals that are driven by the top levels of leadership and sort of these, you know, 500 or 1500 page long monstrosities that no one actually has the time to read but we absolutely have to pass it right this minute yes and and i i think a lot of people were kind of figuring that out i know you know earlier in the program i was talking about the announcement from uh the ceo at southwest mr kelly on his video call with employees earlier this week saying look uh you know, you guys have done a fantastic job, but our relief money is pretty much gone and their cash burn is big. So they're going to have to take some um, some uh, action, and that is reducing pay so that they can keep people employed and, you know, not on furlough and whatnot. So you would think that an elected official, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, would want to say, hey, let's do some targeted relief to these sectors that we know because we can look at the data as far as the TSA screenings, et cetera, are really getting hammered by this, uh, you know, this virus. It's not our fault. But yet, it, like you said, it gets tied to all this other stuff that is so frustrating um, that, that nothing gets done. And uh, before I forget, actually, it's really there, there was a, a, a question you asked earlier that I I partially answered, but I also partially didn't answer. You, you were saying you know, we, we have this big problem and not sure how to actually go about addressing it. Um, I think the first step is awareness, you know, letting the public know. Um, but the, the most, the more important thing in terms of what we should actually be doing is, for example, not unnecessarily passing huge spending packages and going after spending because even this year the federal government is taking in 
trillions of dollars in tax revenue. The problem isn't that Americans are undertaxed. The problem is that the federal government has ramped up spending, even before COVID, way faster than the economy can keep up with. Yeah, no, I, that's, uh, I appreciate you um, um, following up on that and, and providing that information. So um, I guess one other thing I'll ask you um, is, is, and I spoke about this earlier as well, you know, we heard from a senator down in Georgia, uh, Senator Loeffler, this uh, week say that um, she wants to punish China uh, for the virus and all the damage that it's done. And, you know, I've, I mean, I've been saying that for months myself is, is this isn't our fault, yet we're upside down by trillions of dollars. Souls have been lost. Um, you know, people have been very sick. People have lost jobs, which maybe leads to them losing their car or maybe they lose their house. Families break up. Mental health has deteriorated. Is there any way, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but is there any way that you see we can um, bill, if you will, uh, China for what, what happened and from what came there? What, is there any way trade-wise or, or any other policy that we could make work to our benefit? The difficulty with trying to attack this problem through trade is that trade goes both ways. And a, a lot of times when we've tried to enact tariffs punitively, tariffs get slapped on us. And there have been many businesses and industries that have been harmed directly or indirectly uh, by some of the, the trade actions that have taken place with China. When Now, I'm not a public health expert, but when I look at how this whole situation unfolded, China was very secretive, as they always are, when there's anything that they think reflects badly on the communist leadership. And if they had been more forthright with the World Health Organization, the United Nations, nations like America, we could have gotten on top of this problem and, for example, clamped down on travel to and from China, which is ultimately how this spread. I think the most important thing that we can do is try to hold China accountable for their actions here globally. And you know, through organizations like the World Health Organization, the UN, um, OECD, just you know, different organizations to say, China has put the entire world at risk. They're, they need to be held accountable. They're, there need to be consequences for those actions. Um, as far as what those consequences look like, that is something, unfortunately, is above my pay grade. Okay, so like in, in um, during all of your studies uh, with your degrees and whatnot, and then also with working uh, on the Senate uh, Banking Committee and, and helping out there, nothing comes to mind as to other than you know, embarrassing them, which in my, this is me speaking, obviously, in my, my view, embarrassing them on the public stage, which is exactly what they should have done to them. But there's no way um, maybe that you can think of or that you've seen in the past that we could somehow reap a financial benefit to help make up for all this taxpayer money. Honestly, I, I don't know how we could. Um, and and one, one thing that, that sort of Hold the, that is a restraint on America's ability to act against China beyond the fact that 
we do have you know, so much trade back and forth with them is the fact that they hold uh, the second largest amount of debt of any nation in the world after Japan. They hold over a trillion dollars in our debt, and we don't know what kind of action they could take to try to leverage those holdings, for example, by dumping them onto the market and suddenly cause a spike in interest rates, which would have long-lasting ramifications. So we've allowed China to get a certain amount of leverage on us. Yeah, and I mean, but like to me, again, if China, which they won't admit it, and you can probably sense my frustration, but um, that would be a great start, wouldn't it? They just forgive that trillion dollars in debt. Um, I'm not sure how that would work either, because <laughs> if if we say, oh, we're just not going to pay China their interest, then global markets might not might think that American debt is no longer completely safe. And if they don't think it's safe anymore, then, again, it could raise interest rates. So yeah, we, I, w- I was looking at it more as uh, not a default by us, but as a courtesy of, of China because the, the way they've screwed everything oh. up. That's, I was, you know, something. It just seems oh, like somehow. Oh, yes, that, it, it, I mean, if, if they did that, that would be fantastic. <laughs> but I unfortunately, I wouldn't hold my breath on them. Uh, yeah, you or me. Doing the right thing. Yeah, I won't do that either. Um Okay, so my guest today has been uh, uh, Mr. David Ditch. He's a research associate at the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. Um, A lot of good pieces. If you go to heritage.org and just type in David, and the last name is spelled D-I-T-C-H, it'll pull up his writings along with a lot of other good stuff. I mean, on their uh, homepage today, you know, they've got uh, information about confirming Miss um, Barrett, along with a message from the president uh, of the uh, Heritage Foundation. So again, go to heritage.org and uh, you can find the, the subject matter that we spoke about today with David Ditch and a lot of other good stuff. David, thanks so much for taking time out of your weekend and for, uh, for joining me. I really appreciate uh, your time and I enjoyed our conversation. Happy to talk to you, Chris. Absolutely. Okay, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Um, And that does it for us. We're out of time. And I mentioned you can go to heritage.org and get a bunch of good information. You can sign up for their daily emails. Um, It's really good stuff that that they're writing. And I've been... Gosh, I, I've been following their stuff for years and years and years, and it's it's really helpful, especially when you hear a lot of the other nonsense uh, out there. So um, I hope uh, I hope it all works out uh, for you, and and you enjoy it as much as I do. Also, you can go to MurrayFinancialGroup.com, and uh, you get the latest complimentary piece we have. Are you paying too much in taxes in retirement? That's an instant download uh, for you, and you can um, just read it on your screen or you can uh, print it off and mark it all up. I just want it to be helpful uh, to you. That's why we put it on there. And I'll talk with you um, weekday mornings, 550, 650, 750. uh, When I speak with my friend Bob Miller and we do the business updates and um, those are live updates. So it's always fun talking to Bob and kind of letting folks know what's going on out there. And then we'll be back uh, next Saturday for the Your Financial Editor program. So Enjoy your uh, your weekend. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success.
It's impossible for me not to speed down an old dirt road. Yeah, I ain't inclined to decline me a beer when the beer's ice cold. I got autos on a minute, he's on both of my trucks once for pulling out the other when the other one's stuck. I got some redneck Tennessee's when. 